Would you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And while you're doing that, I want to read to you from Acts 2 where we started. Oh, sorry, you did that, didn't you? Sorry. Acts 2, my bad. Let Sue do her job, Darren. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You're going to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm just going to read from Acts 2.42. To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And then in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There is a playbook for church of how God meant it to be. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the apostles' teaching. We talked about the mission of love and the message of truth, the word of God. They were devoted to the word. And then we talked about fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship, to being together. And today, we're talking about the breaking of bread. Now, there are those who believe that that is uh, the breaking of bread here is about um, people just getting together and eating. That's probably a little bit true. You can see in different versions in the New Testament, different moments where they're just getting together and having a potluck dinner or pot blessing, depending on your theology. But there's also places where it's clearly they're talking about the Lord's Supper, and I think that it's not an either-or, it's really a both-and. The way that they celebrated the Lord's Supper, what we would call communion, the Eucharist, was in a group setting. So in Acts 2, it says they were devoted to breaking of bread. Now, I'm going to read to you what happened to the church just a few decades later after Acts 2. We see this beautiful thing. They're sharing, they're giving, they're being nice to each other. And then Paul gets to a church in a city called Corinth. He spends about 18 months with him, and then he leaves. And about five years later, he's like, you got to be kidding me. So he writes them a letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. It is basically a bare-butt spanking to the church at Corinth. Okay, This is a straight-up, I have had it up to here with you people. And he gets to their admonition about breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And he says in the following directives, verse 17, chapter 11, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be. You can just feel the sarcasm dripping off of this. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. I don't know whose supper it is, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers, and as a result, one remains hungry and another gets hammered. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No way. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, saying, I told you about this. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, in this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I would love to stop there, but Paul didn't. He says, so whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is Bible speak for he gone. He's dead. Like this, this is really interesting stuff. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you all should eat together. And anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it doesn't result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a light and it's a lamp. And Lord, today we just pray that your word will be interpreted through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the blood of Christ and the body that was broken. That we'll interpret it this morning through Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so today, Lord, just invite you to speak to us. Just take a moment to breathe, to listen, to sit and wait for your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. What on earth is that all about? Because <laughs> doesn't it feel on a first reading, God like, you guys know what the whack-a-mole game is? You know what I'm talking about, the whack-a-mole? Doesn't it feel a little bit like God just saying, was the Johnny Cash song, God's going to get you for that? No, he's going to cut you down. Sooner or later, he'll cut you down. It feels like that, but that doesn't square with Romans 8, verse 1. It doesn't square with saved by grace, not by works. I think there's something serious and life-altering in this, but maybe not quite the way that you might feel it. Because when you look at what he's saying here, to remember, there's something super important about Remembering, um, friend of ours, friend of the ministry, been a part of our church. He served as an elder. Is a guy named David Holderman. Have you heard of transient global amnesia? Has anybody heard of that? That's not like amnesia for homeless people. Transients. It's actually that sounded funnier in my head. It's transient global amnesia. I'd never heard of it. And literally, this is past year. Like two people that I know pretty well, that happened to them, where they just wake up. And they've forgotten most everything about their lives and themselves. Does it happen to you? So you know. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Isn't that the truth? The older you get, the more you're like, I didn't know that was an option. WebMD is like the worst ever. <laughs> but what happened with David Holderman, and you guys might have experienced this too, Pam, was that he said that my wife felt like she didn't realize how much her memories played a part in their relationship, his memories. That... He was still intelligent, he could still drive, probably make an omelet for all I know, but he couldn't remember anything about their lives. And by the way, he doesn't even remember this 24-hour episode with him. Apparently, he kept telling the same joke over and over again with a lot of gusto, <laughs> closing it really great, but he didn't know it, so he kept doing it over and over again. The memories that they had was what connected them together as a, a couple. There's a connection that memory brings to us. Um, my daughter Ashley had a birthday just last week. And when we have birthdays, one of the things we talk about is, oh, do you remember when you were born? And Ashley always says no. 
And I always laugh like it's the first time I ever thought of that joke. But what we do is then we'll talk about, Shannon will remember things that I don't remember, which is actually pretty normal. Um, But that's called transactional memories. Transactional memory is that there are things that I don't remember, but I know she does, so I don't put as big of a priority on it. So I'm storing it in her, right? You think I'm joking, but (laughs) taking the trash out on Thursdays, I store that memory in her because she will remind me. Here's the thing. That's actually, I mean, it is kind of ha-ha, but there's actually a thing. And the longer you live with somebody, the more that they remember things about you or you remember about them, and they store those memories in you. That's why when someone has lived a long, meaningful life together, and that person steps into eternity, they feel like a part of them has died because it has. Their memories went with them. Transactional memory is a thing. Memory, remembering, do this in remembrance of me, he tells us, and it is because it connects us, and this is what we're going to see here in in 1 Corinthians 11 is like the bizarro church, the exact opposite of what was supposed to be. This is the exact opposite of Acts 2. And remembering is the difference. Remembering connects us to each other. It connects us to Christ, and it connects us to his coming. Remembering the body broken, remembering the blood shed. It wasn't just an exercise. It is a thing that ties us to each other. It connects us to him, and it connects us to his coming. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you see like the exact opposite. The main difference, by the way, between, I think, Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 is they weren't remembering. See, if you look at it, I, I sort of just glanced over it. You can probably notice more if you pay more attention. But Acts 2, they were all united together in one place, right? They were all together in one accord. In 1 Corinthians 11, they were all together divided. They were sitting in the same room, but not on the same page. The power of the Holy Spirit that united them in remembering, being devoted to breaking of bread, remembering what he's done. They were united in Acts 2, divided in 1 Corinthians 11. In Acts 2, they were eating together with glad and sincere hearts. In 1 Corinthians 11, some people were mopping up the buffet and leaving nothing for the rest. They weren't all together on that. In Acts 2, they were giving to those who were in need and selling their things. In 1 Corinthians 11, they were humiliating those who were in need and not. In Acts 2, they were not drunk, as you suppose. 1 Corinthians 11... They were drunk, (laughs) just as you suppose. The exact opposite was happening. What was happening, I believe, was that they were partaking of the Lord's body and blood without the examination, without the remembering of why they did what they did. The unity of the mission that he gave them, the unity of the message that he gave them in Acts 2 was lost just a few decades later. We can come together as a church and be sitting in the same room and still be completely divided. But the Man, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ unites us. Because in the gospel, the essence of the gospel, there is no Jew and no Gentile. There is no male, no female, no rich, no poor, no caste system, no class system, no free, no slave. We are all standing on a level playing field in front of the cross. And the broken body of Christ reminds me of that, that my ego and my pride is checked. And I'm not divided about this, what I used to be divided about because I'm on the same page of the mission that he gave us from that body. It connects us to each other. And it connects us to Christ. Now you might think, duh, that's what we're doing. 
which was kind of what I thought. But as I was really reading and praying about this, I saw a way that he is connecting us to Christ that I had never seen before. He talks about in verse 27, 28 of chapter 11 that he was the body and the blood of the Lord, the body of Christ. Those who eat, drink without discerning the body. He's talking about connecting it to the body. You see, God is talking about when we do this, that it connects us to our leader in a way that we wouldn't have been able to any other way. Have, let me ask it this way. Has anybody heard of Simon Sinek, if I say that name? Has anybody read his book, Why Leaders Eat Last? Just curious. Wow. He didn't sell any copies of this book. Um, yeah, I feel kind of bad for him now because that was actually the result almost in all three services. Simon Sinek wrote a book called Why Leaders Eat Last. And the premise was this. Now, he is, again, a secular humanist. He would say, this is how we were biology. We evolved. I want you to know that I just believe this is exactly how God wired you and me. And all he did was reverse engineer it and figure it out. But his premise was this. You and I were created to live in community with each other in safety. Groups of 100 to 150 people, that's sort of what is the, the primo. You've probably heard that from Malcolm Gladwell books. But those 150 people gathered together is kind of how we were wired to be, with a leader there to keep us safe. Now, he says in Why Leaders Eat Last, the premise of it was he interviewed a Marine general. Do we have any Marines in here? I don't think Kettner's here this morning. He said that the difference, he was asking him, why? How does the Marines, how do you guys make leaders that'll run into danger, that will fly into danger? And how do you do that? How do you get somebody to want to do that? And this general said, well, that's easy. Our leaders eat last. And the premise was that a good leader, a safe leader, will run to danger, not away from danger. That the cost of leadership, if you will, is that he will sacrifice his life for the good of the group. And so the good leader, you know he's good because he runs to the danger. He doesn't hide behind you in the danger. And Cynic's proposal is that we were wired for that. And isn't it funny that Jesus, on the last night before he was crucified, bent down and washed his disciples' feet, showing them that leaders are good, that leaders that are safe serve the people that they're there. So I'm going to ask you to trust me for the next five to ten minutes because I'm about to take you on a physiological journey. And on the end of, the end of this, we're going to end up back in 1 Corinthians 11. So I'm asking you to trust me, okay? Because you're going to think about three minutes into this, what? <laughs> but at the end of this, I hope that you'll see that I believe that God fearfully and wonderfully made us in a way that the bread, the blood, the body, the blood of Christ, that our group of 150 isn't something that we evolved for. It was something that we were created for. In the side of every one of us as humans, we're given this reward system. There are these chemicals inside of us. If you're a kid, does your mom ever give you candy if you do something right? Like you get a reward, right? In, in Williamson County, now, by the way, if you do this to your family, I'm, I'm only, well, I guess I'm kind of making fun of you. I don't mean to be... Um, I remember when our kids were little, one of our neighbor friends got like a Nintendo DS or something for getting like an A on a test. Like a test and A, a test. Right? People are like, man, my parents. We're Williamson County. They're giving them rewards. I'm like, how about you get a place to sleep tonight? And maybe breakfast. But what the parents were doing was, you know, they're giving a reward for a thing. Now, the reason that can work, maybe you don't have to do the Nintendo DS, 
is that we're made for that. Our bodies are made for that. And inside of our bodies are four chemicals that are the reward system that basically create what we would know as happiness or contentment. They're, they're the things that drive us to do these things that bring us to what we would know as happiness. It's endorphins, it's dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Some of you are nodding, you, you already know some of this. The first two, endorphins and dopamine, those are the selfish chemicals because I don't need anything else. I don't need anyone else for those. Uh, endorphins is, the, it masks pain. For some of you that maybe ran the marathon, the reason that your legs didn't hurt until the next day was because the endorphins had not worn off yet. They're there for that. And it's to drive you to do something that's good for you. So we were created in a small group to feed each other, to work together, to get food, or endorphins when you're trying to hunt down buffalo in the plains of Nebraska. You need endorphins to push through the pain to get the food. I was born and raised there, by the way, on the Oregon Trail. You know about the Oregon Trail? Yeah. That's, I was born on the Oregon Trail in Nebraska, which means my ancestors were quitters. <laughs> Not the Nebraska Trail. You understand. Like, at some point, they said, oh, this is good enough. <laughs> First time I went to Oregon, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> This is, they, they settled for this. But when they settled there, they had in a group of small groups, they would move into what, you know, the circle, these little villages, and these villages, the endorphins would push them to be able to get the food that they needed. But they also have a thing called dopamine. Dopamine is a, of a chemical we're much more aware of. It should come with a warning label because it's ridiculously addictive. We get dopamine from things like eating, from sex. We get dopamine from achieving things. Another way for dopamine is, uh, how many of you are list people? Okay. How many of you, so when you mark something off your list, Phyllis, you feel pretty good. Dopamine. How many of you did something this week where you actually did it, wasn't on the list, you wrote it down anyway and marked it off the list? Holly. <laughs> you might be addicted to dopamine. <laughs> but it's the feeling of, it's the get stuff done chemical. God put that inside of you to get stuff done. You don't need anybody else for endorphins or for dopamine. If you want to feel those, man, go for a run and eat a pizza. <laughs> it's over. Now, the trick is that what you really need is serotonin and oxytocin for relationship. You were created for that. Those chemicals exist in you for that to move you forward into relationship. But in our culture, we will settle for dopamine. If, if you work and you get a bonus and you get a check and you, if you're a workaholic, for instance, and you might have been told that before, you're addicted to the success of marking that off your list in your career and you have settled for that instead of the chemical that he put in you, which is to draw you towards somebody else. Serotonin, Ashley will graduate high school, okay? She, she has been to school enough. She's gotten enough of, uh, of the credits. She's gotten really awesome grades. And she's going to walk across the stage, and, and we're going to congratulate her for it. But if all she did with those things, why not just send her an email with a little diploma in it, and she prints it off, puts it on the wall, and we're done? Because serotonin. It's the leadership chemical. That's what Simon Sinek would say. It's the leadership chemical that says that when she walks across that stage, that she feels like she's accomplished something. And she's feeling it in front of mom and dad who are beaming with pride because we're so proud of her. 
recognition in humans is important. It's part of being in a group. It's part of how you were wired. It's why serotonin is so important. And then there is oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love chemical. The love chemical is the one that actually, between husband and wife, it's why people who have been married in long and meaningful relationships actually live longer. Like that's proven research. Because in that relationship where there's plenty of oxytocin, the inflammation is reduced. Like health is happening. Things, good things are happening in you. You can get oxytocin when you give to somebody who can't possibly repay you. We get oxytocin when a baby is born. The mother's body is flooded with oxytocin and it bonds the child to the mother. In sex, the body is flooded with oxytocin. Sorry, everybody play yours. PG-13. And it bonds the man and the woman together, which is why when you have bonded with someone who wasn't your spouse, the oxytocin, chemically, you were not made to do that. These are the four chemicals that your body has been given to use to do what God, to drive you to what God wants for you. And these chemicals are important, and it's why sometimes people have medication because of chemical imbalance. That's what they're talking about. That's not something to be repenting of. It's something to be healed of for God to move in your life. Here's the clincher for me. There is one more chemical that I have up here called cortisol. It is the fight or flight chemical. Okay, cortisol is what your body floods with when you almost had a car accident or when you rear-ended somebody and all of a sudden your blood pressure's up and you're sweating and your heart rate is because your body is being flooded with cortisol. Cortisol happens when you're in a situation where you are not safe. When a bear is chasing you, and who hasn't had that? Your body floods with cortisol, fight or flight drug. When your body is flooded with cortisol, oxytocin production goes down. Now, if you've been sleeping, wake up, because this is about, it's about to get real good. We're living in a society right now where we're supposed to be is there's danger all around us, but in the circle of safety, circle the wagons, that's how you were made to be. When you are outside of that, if your entire life consists of fight or flight, if your marriage is constantly screaming at each other, if your workplace, you don't know whether you're going to be there another day or not, if your boss is completely hammering and you, you can't figure it out, if you're in school and you're scared, you are in a constant cortisol drip. Drip, drip. And when cortisol is produced, oxytocin goes down. And when oxytocin goes down, so does health. Simon Sinek says that we're the richest culture maybe in the human history, and we are more sick than we've ever been as a culture. Drip, drip, drip. We weren't made to live in fear. We were made to live in safety and in peace. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, you who have come together and you are so divided, you're supposed to be in the circle of safety and instead, even in your own safety, you're now afraid because someone is oppressing you and marginalizing you. And you, the whole world around them was falling apart in Christianity. At that time, it was very dangerous to be a Christian. There's danger outside and they're supposed to be safe. And where they were supposed to be safe, it was danger. And he says, when you don't approach the Lord's table, 
remembering that your leader is safe, remembering the body and the bread and the blood and, and, the, and the wine. If you don't remember that, discern it because of that. Many of you are sick and some of you are even dying. I don't believe that it was God hammering them. I believe he was just saying, look, you were made to be this way and I've created this thing called the church, this circle of safety. And when you come into here divided, you are not getting what I have created you to be. I've created you this thing to drive you together. And when you do that, and your body feels the oxytocin, the chemicals you're made in. And by the way, these are just chemicals. I believe that God created your consciousness. There's a reason why science can create organs in a lab, but they can't create a human. Because consciousness goes way beyond that. I'm just suggesting that in our bodies are these things that God put in us as a gift, not a curse, to drive us towards what was best for us anyway. And here's what we know, that it's connecting us to each other and it's connecting us to Jesus. And then the third thing is that he says, it's talking about until I come, my coming is going to happen. He is coming, it connects us to his coming. Our leader is good. Again, we bring into the circle of safety that anthropologists say we need that God said, I knew this long before you did. And in that circle of safety, we need a leader who is good, a leader we can trust. And I want you to know if you're looking at me saying you're that leader, the answer is no, it's Jesus. Jesus is the head of this church, not Darren. And you know how we know that Jesus is good? Simon Sinek said, hey, Marine General said, because we eat last. Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 16, and again in verse 18, he says, we're eating, I want you to eat of this bread, drink of this uh, juice, this wine. Sorry, I know we're in the South. It was wine. (laughs) Drink of this blood until I return. By the way, when the God of the universe says, this is my body and this is my blood and puts it in your hand, he's making himself accessible to you. Uh, he is moving into the circle. But he says, you eat now, I will eat after my kingdom is revealed. I will eat last. He is good because he will eat, but he will eat last. Now, the beautiful thing about this whole journey is this. What will he eat? What will he drink on that day? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, my life is already being poured out like a drink offering. He speaks of his life and the sacrifice that he made as a drink offering being poured out. What is a drink offering? In the Old Testament, a drink offering is when the priest would take wine and pour it onto the sacrifice for God. It was God's wine spoke of joy. Paul says, my life being poured out, your life being poured out, is God's wine. So on this side of heaven, we're eating and we're drinking and we're eating and we're drinking of Christ. On the other side of heaven, the glass that he will raise after is you. Your sacrifice. Your blood that was... Paul said, and when you pour your life out the way you were wired to be, and you might not... Maybe they're not thankful. Some of you might have served in the nursery first or second service and those kids didn't say thank you. Your sacrifice isn't for them, it's for him. It's poured onto them, but it's for him. Does this make sense? And at that moment, when he drinks of that wine, he's drinking, not literally, but figuratively, celebrating, raising a glass that is the glass of your sacrifice that he saw every last bit of. Nothing is wasted. 
Phyllis, he looks back over your entire life and will hold up the glass of Phyllis as a toast of 80-some years of faithful service, the good, the bad, the ugly, the ups and the downs, and he holds it up as a cheers. It's important that we remember that we discern the body and the blood. We're going to do that now. You might have noticed we didn't do communion on the front side. This moment of communion is a common union, us communing together. And as our worship band comes back for just a few minutes, I know I'm aware of the time. And I mean, the Baptists have already beat us to the restaurants anyway, so... But it's my prayer that as we worship for a little while longer, that you, if you're visiting, you may not know this, but we always have the elements of communion available in the front. We have it in the middle on either side, and we got it in the back as well uh, because we love you. There's a gluten-free option still. But we brought straight up loaves of bread today just for the picture of the body and the bread, the body and the blood of Christ today. And as you partake of this, as we are worshiping a little while longer, Would you pray and just believe and remember and remind yourself and remind each other and know that it's going to connect you to each other today because there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God, only Jesus. And the invitation for you today is to move into the circle of safety that the world could never provide, that only a leader who will not let you down could provide. That leader is Jesus. And we know this because he eats last. Do this often in remembrance of me until I come proclaiming my death. Heavenly Father, we step into this realm today expecting amazing things from you. You are the God of miracles. By your stripes we are healed as we discern this body and blood today. We discern it in a way that reminds us of the safety that you bring for us, the goodness that you have toward us. We discern it that way today, Lord. We remind ourselves of that, knowing that you are good, that your mercy endures forever, and you proved it once and for all on the cross. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray.